Welcome to this week's episode of the Music History Project. Today, our episode focuses on women in music and influential performers. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. So with March being National Women's History Month, we found it fitting to have the podcast be all about uh, women in the music industry. And more specifically today, we're talking about influential performers. So over the years, we have been able to interview a lot of wonderful women who have contributed greatly to the music products industry. And uh, today's podcast is focused on some of the performers that have been a great influence. And I'm really grateful to the woman on our team, Elizabeth, for going through these interviews and uh, coming up with the time codes and some of the subjects that we're going to be covering. So I think it's fitting for you to introduce our first uh, interview. Oh, boy. Uh, So our first interview, we're going to be hearing from Jennifer Batten, who is a very iconic guitarist, female guitarist. Um, And this interview was conducted back in January of 2016 by our good friend, Paul Peterson. So shout out to Paul Peterson if you're listening. Thank you so much for your help with the program. And Jennifer is known for a lot of things, playing with a lot of influential people. But I would say what stuck out most to me um, and what I would have recognized her playing records that she's played on and everything is her work with Michael Jackson. Right. She did three world tours with him, I think, starting in, uh, what, 1987. And um, amazing, amazing contributions to his career, for sure. Is there any fun facts or anything we want to add for Jennifer Batten? Anybody have anything else? Well, I love that, uh, you know, she was born in New York and uh, grew up very fascinated with uh, musical instruments, uh, ukulele and guitar. And really became a thrasher. You know, she uh, broke the mold. Uh, it was not an all-boys group when uh, when she got done. Uh, she came and proved that she could definitely wield that guitar around and play some amazing power chords, uh, working with people like Jeff Beck. And then softening it up and being very melodic for a lot of the things that she did on world tour with Michael Jackson and then later with Stevie Wonder, among many other people. So she's really proven that she's very... Uh, versatile in her playing as well. So just to let you guys know out there, we're not going to be listening to all of Jennifer Batten's interview. We've kind of narrowed it down to a segment um, that allows for us to include some other influential women in today's episode without going, you know, having like a six hour podcast for you, because that would be rough for all of us, I feel like. Um, So (laughs) I think we should turn it over to Mike to let let him introduce where we're going to start with Jennifer. Yeah, so it looks like we're going to hear from her talking about um, her decision to play professionally, how that came about, um, her first big break within the music industry, and then talking about working with um, iconic musicians such as Michael Jackson and Jeff Beck. I announced to my mother, I made her come in and listen to this new song I played that was 
like 15 minutes long, which is probably 14 minutes too <laughs> more than it needed to be. But I had my audience, and I announced when I was 12 years old that I wanted to be a professional musician. And being very motherly, she warned me. She said, you know, that's a very competitive business, honey. When you're 12, that means nothing. It's, this is what I want to do. But the reason I remember it all these years later is just put a little bit of fear in me, like competition, ah, what is that? So uh, yeah, I, I knew for, for many years what I wanted to do. Uh, what would you say was your first real break in terms of moving you ahead in, as a professional? Well, uh, it sounds kind of crazy, but my first break, well, I would say a little break was to play with an Elvis impersonator. That was the first tour I ever went on. And the tour was really wacky because this guy's brother was a missionary on the island of Samoa. So that was the connection, and that's where the tour went. And it was so exotic and fun and crazy, and I was just, that's what I want to do. I want to tour and experience different cultures. Mm -hmm. I really got the bug at that point. But I played in a bunch of showcase bands in um, L.A. doing the, the Whiskey, the Roxy, the usual thing. And I was in L.A. for three years when I got the audition for Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my first big break was yeah. the biggest break ever. Yeah. <laughs> as big as they get. Yeah. 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 Tell us a little about that experience working with Michael. I was like a paid vacation. I, I was a fan already, so I knew his tunes. And, uh, boy, I, I just remember the v in the very beginning, I mean, he was at the peak in 1987. He was everywhere. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing him. It was Michael Jackson toothpaste, Michael Jackson MTV rotation. And I remember sitting in front of the TV when Thriller was announced. You know, you'd wait until the moment they were going to release that video. Um, so I was overjoyed, so overjoyed that I couldn't sleep. I would stay up till three in the morning working on the tunes, making sure I got every detail right, and then I'd wake up at six for no reason. <laughs> it's the only time I've ever taken sleeping pills, because I had to. I had to get that sleep in order to go through a 10-hour day for rehearsal. Um, it was wonderful. I, I got to see the world, all the pictures of things you'd see in American history books, like the Roman Colosseum all of a sudden. I look out the bus window on the way to the hotel, and there it is. It was a wonderful way to see the world. And get paid for it. Yeah, indeed. And Jeff Beck, obviously, that was another highlight. Yeah. yeah, neither of those were expected by any stretch at all. I just wanted his autograph. And actually, there was a guy in the, the bad tour that said he'd introduce us because he had worked for Jeff and Jan previously. And it didn't happen. I thought, that's my bucket list. And so when I found out I was going on the next Michael Jackson tour, the Dangerous Tour in 92, that was my number one goal. And everywhere we went, I would ask the Sony reps if they had any connection to him and how I could get to meet him. And finally, somebody came through and got him tickets to see us play at Wembley and made that connection. And uh, my first record had just come out. And also, MTV in Europe was playing Flight of the Bumblebee that was from my first record, a video that was covered with 150,000 live honeybees Bees. trying to get attention. And um, they just gave me a copy of that. So I had that in the CD, and I gave that to Jeff, thinking he'd, you know, he'd probably never listen to the CD. I, I know I get inundated with CDs, and there's just not enough time in the world. I got a call three months later. I just, I just finally had a, li I listened to your record. And uh, 
you know, all, all UK accents all sound like Monty Python when they come out of me. <laughs> just listen to your record properly and uh, just said, let's do a record together. And it, it just blew my mind. Uh, and it was actually five years later that it happened, but he never forgot. You know, I thought, you know, you get a spark of inspiration. You think, let's do this. And then you're on to other things. And I saw him several times. Uh, he did a tour with Santana and some other things. And I would see him. And every time I saw him, he goes, we're, we're going to play. And I thought, you don't have to say that, you know. Um, he finally said, we have a tour of Italy. Let's do it. And he, we had never played together. He just had that much faith from my records. And that by then, I had another record out as well. So that was three years of bliss. Yeah. You know, he's, he's pretty much everybody's ultimate guitar god. I think Jennifer's just a really great storyteller. And um, you really get the impression from listening to her about how humble she really is, you know. It's clear that she worked extremely hard to get where she was, uh, especially when she, you know, kind of made it, I guess, quote unquote, with uh, getting on the Michael Jackson World Tour and stuff like that. But, you know, you listen to her speak and she's just so grounded, especially when she talks about like, oh, I'm going to be on a bus with a bunch of bunch of smelly snoring dudes and whatever. <laughs> I love it and everything. Um, she just she's so likable from her interview. Yeah, I absolutely. Think that's the the biggest piece I gained from listening to it all. And she's also sort of the quintessential um, uh, NAM guest. You know, she's always at a NAM show and people are always looking forward to seeing her. Uh, she's definitely part of the uh, industry family. And as you say, Elizabeth, she's very likable and people just like hanging out with her and uh, getting their pictures taken and so on. So it's uh, it's always a joy to have her around. So having this interview in our collection is very fitting. And I think that is a really great segue to our second half um, of our Jennifer Batten interview that we're going to be featuring today, because since she is an AM guest pretty frequently on, you can find her at the show and everything like that. I think that just kind of shows how into equipment she really is and how much of a gearhead she is and how much she loves being in that atmosphere. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to be hearing about her current, at the time of the interview, current uh, favorite equipment that she uses uh, the next project she was going to be working on back in 2016 and as well as the guitar she used on Tribal Rage and my favorite her impressions of Nam because you know they're good which means I have a job <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so here's the conclusion of our segment on Jennifer Batten. One of the most exciting things is the Fishman triple play it's a wireless MIDI system and when I was with Jeff Beck I did a lot of MIDI synth triggering and at that time I had a Roland GK2 pickup that went to this big bulky 13 pin cable and then into a MIDI converter and then into a rack of sounds and it was just so much equipment that after Jeff I just stopped doing MIDI at all because I, I would do a lot of fly dates jump on a plane and I, I couldn't put all that stuff in a suitcase um, plus I'm lazy I didn't want to <laughs> and uh, when the wireless MIDI came along from Fishman, I thought, oh boy, it's time to jump back in and see where technology is. And it's so much better than it ever was. Uh, a thousand times more convenient. It's just a plastic controller that's on the guitar and that wirelessly talks to a USB dongle that goes, for me, into my MacBook Air, which I, I take a computer anyway on the road. That's it. You just take the audio out. Um, you know, I was doing demos earlier. Uh, doing Teen Town with fretless bass and the sound responds 
so quickly to, to bends, to vibrato, to any little nuance that guitar players are used to doing, it's a whole new world. Because yeah. in the old system, I, I couldn't really solo with that uh, stuff because the delay was horrible. And the bass was as bad as it could get. But now, you know, demoing Teen Town, you have to have something that responds, that responds instantly. So I'm, I'm thrilled with it. And um, I, I've been playing with it about a year and take it on the road with me and it's, it's just easy. You can even use an iPad for sounds if you want to. And, and they've just come out with a new FC1 controller that's a floorboard. So people that don't want to take their laptops on stage can still trigger sounds from a keyboard or from any sound module. So it's 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 pretty amazing, yeah. yeah. Things have moved ahead quickly. Yeah. In the years. And I'm also really excited about a new guitar that Washburn has built me. They have a, a lot of their guitars have a thing called a Stevens Cutaway, that's a real revolution in guitar building. There's there's not a lot that changes with the guitars over the years. It might change the looks here and there, but you don't really notice it so much from the front. But when you turn it around, it you have so much more space high up on the neck, and it, it just gives you so much more freedom that you, than you've ever had before, so I'm really excited about that. And I'll be taking that on tour. I'm going out with Uli John Roth at the end of February, and Andy Timmons, the, the ultimate guitar experience, it's called. So I'm real excited about that. Yeah, that's what I was gonna ask you, is what's your next exciting project? Yeah. Uh, Six weeks sleeping in a bus with 12 snoring men. I don't, I don't know how that's going to go. <laughs> I, I'm already planning how many... the back bedroom back there oh, to yourself. I, I've got you several sets of earplugs. <laughs> yeah. You just don't want that bunk over the wheel well. I've learned that over the years. Yeah. That's loud. Yeah. Well, I'll take road noise over snoring any day. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been a real pleasure, and I really appreciate it. They had one other question they wanted me to ask you about, and that's the instrument that you used for the album Tribal Rage. Yeah, on Tribal Rage, I was using my, my Washburn. It was, a, it was my model called the JB100. Mm -hmm. And let's see. I, there was two models that you could get. They're, they're not made anymore, but one had a synthesizer built in, uh, the, the Roland pickup, and one without. So that, that was it, and I, I still have that. It, it even got stolen once, and I got it back, and they had the headstock broken off it. It's got so many battle scars. So uh, I was, I was going to retire it, but I like it too much, so I, I'm still playing it. Cool. Good. Good. And how's the NAMM experience been for you uh, lately here? It's been, it's been really cool, really cool. I took 10 years off because it was just too much chaos for me. The noise was overwhelming, and the walking, and blah. Uh, but it's really cool to come back with a new endorsement company with Fishman. The energy is great. Uh, they treat me great. And also the She Rocks Awards took place this year, the, the fourth, fourth annual She Rocks Awards. So that was really, really fun to be honored by a giant room full of people and get to play with the happening band. The band just blew my mind. Divinity Rocks on bass from Beyonce. and. Cat Dyson from Prince, just top notch. So the next interviewee we're going to hear from is a very prolific musician, 
the drummer Sheila E. I really have great memories. This only goes back a few years, but 2014, getting the chance to interview her. Uh, she was doing a segment on a, uh, a show similar to The View. I can't remember what it is um, or what it was. Uh, filmed at the uh, CBS studios in Los Angeles. And it was really a thrill to walk through that studio uh, down the street where they used to film Leave it to Beaver and all that kind of stuff. And um, just have that opportunity with her. She's very charming, uh, very passionate about music. Of course, she grew up in it in a very musical home um, and was influenced by uh, people in her family and friends that would come through uh, the home growing up and became very influential on um, Marty Cohen, the founder of Latin Percussion, and designed many instruments and uh, hardware for her. Um, and of course, the LP family is um, very tight and getting together every NAM show at parties and so on. Uh, you can really tell the love that they have for each other. So it's uh, it's another real thrill for me that we have this uh, interview of Sheila E. in our collection. And as we celebrate um, this month uh, dedicated to women, uh, it's really neat to include some of her stories. So Elizabeth, where are we going to start? So we're really going to be able to hear the passion, like you mentioned, in Sheila's voice when she's talking in this first section about the connection she feels with the instrument she plays, as well as her giving a little words of wisdom for students moving forward that want to break into music and play music professionally. Well, the connection with some of the instruments is really the excitement. Like if I hear someone playing drums, which I did when I was younger and I could hear a band down the street practicing or someone in their garage practicing drums, I would just get excited and go, it's like saying, there's candy in a candy store, you know? Um, I would go run to the corner and just stand outside and listen to it and that connection was, I love that sound, I love how that they're playing that, I wanna know how to do that, you know? Um, and I just wanted to touch and, and play and learn and, and it is every instrument, like I then, uh, my brother started playing trumpet. So I picked up his trumpet, that connection of, hey, here's another instrument. Then it became saxophone. Hey, let me play a little bass, let me play guitar. You just want to then start experimenting with all of the instruments, as well as then we started realizing, well, everything has a sound. Everything makes a sound, and it's what you do with it. So then I started picking up different things in the house because I really started on pots and pans with my mom's pots and pans. But then I started picking up different things in the house and trying to figure out, well, how could I make this work on the record or not? Or how can I make this sound like something that I can incorporate that is not the normal instrument, but it is an instrument. It makes a sound. Um, then I started experimenting with different things, with hairbrushes, with water bottles. I mean, anything in this room right now, I can make a sound and make it fun and like, hey, let's just try this out, you know? So I actually encourage and, and tell other uh, people that want to play music or learn, it's like, don't put yourself in a box where you don't want to experiment. You know, um, you can learn by trying different things and, you know, it's not the norm now. I mean, you don't have to use the actual instrument. You can use that and then use something else on top of it or change, you know, to make you uh, different from everyone else, you know? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that has, has changed is to talk a little bit about the importance of music education is back when we were kids, if 
certain musicians weren't going to be a professional in classical, they were discouraged. And now we're seeing that even if you play for yourself, making right. music is important. Can right. you talk a little bit about that? Well, I was blessed to be able to go to school and learn how to play violin and read a little bit of music, but not a lot. But because I had a great ear, if you played something for me, I would automatically pay, play it back to you right away. Um, I went on through uh, five years of playing violin and my teacher realized that I didn't know how to read, which was not a good thing because then it didn't allow me to, um, I got called for sessions to play percussion on uh, a lot of movies and I ended up not being able to do that because there's specific parts that are written at a time that a scene happens and if you're not reading the chart and that one thing, if it's a triangle or a tambourine or a shaker or a certain rhythm that is, has been written out for you to play, if you don't read, you're not going to know where that goes. So now I'm not in that movie scene of being able to play on those sessions, but I have friends that our directors and producers that have allowed me to come in and pray, play freely by what I hear, what I feel that fits the part. And not everyone gets that opportunity. So I do say definitely um, education is so important and so powerful, you know, and it allows you to, that tool, those tools allow you to expand and, and have a, a a broad career where you could do, play movie, play in movies, you know, orchestrate, um, you could also play, you know, in the studio. A lot of the guys and women as well play, uh, play and read charts instantly. Like, you know, hey, can you come in and play something? And they play it right away. I, I just think that it's important to really learn how to read music as well. And then uh, also experiment by taking the music away. And then what does your heart tell you to play? That's also very important because a lot of times people that read music uh, when you take the music away, they're 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 so used to reading that they're they don't know how to use what's in their heart, what's in their soul. They don't know how to uh, let go and say, well, I don't know how to play that because I'm not reading it. But you've got to allow yourself to open up and be able to, hey, who are you? Let me hear what you hear, and and I think that's just as encouraging as reading. That's very cool. So you're. To, to sum up, maybe to directly ask you, what advice do you give young students who come up to you and say that they want to play music? I say get out, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Cut, no. <laughs> Don't even. Go get a job and be an attorney and get the money. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> oh, man, okay. That was... I'm not kidding. No, you know what? I'll, I'll start again. Um, no, really, I do tell. I, I tell. I tell. Let me start again. I tell uh, a lot of people, young and old. Uh, it's never too late to learn, for one thing. But if you want to be in the music business, there's a couple of things that are very important. One is to learn the business. It's the music business. It should be the business of music if you want to sustain a career. Uh, there are a lot of people that are gifted that will never see the, the light of day. And there are people that are not as experienced and they're making tons of money. Um, and then at the end of the day, five, ten years later, you kind of go, what happened to it all? So learn about the business. Um, really read these contracts and figure out what you're signing. It is so important. Um, 
you know, be true to yourself and don't just sign a contract because someone says, here's the keys to a new car or a house that you can stay in for a year and we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. Those are the worst words you can hear. Don't worry about it. Worry about it. Um, get, get three people that are on your side. If it might be your parents or an attorney or an agent, someone um, uh, that has your back to make sure that you're doing the right thing. Because a chair can't stand on two legs. You need three. And if you've got a good team of three people, I think that that's very important. And then when it comes down to the music itself, if you're really passionate about playing and being in this industry, it's hard. No to some people means failure. No to me means opportunity. No means continue to keep working, move forward. And don't take no for an answer. Not unless this is really not your calling, then get out. If some people think, I'm supposed to be a singer, and they're really not, you really have to really know that this is what you should be doing. Practice, practice, know what you're supposed to play, know the situation. The more, uh, I think the more, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, um, the more prepared you are when you walk into a situation, the more confidence you will have and you will feel at ease and be able to not be stressed out, be on time, treat people nicely, really. Because um, at the end of the day, everything comes back around and next thing you know, oops, I messed up and I never said I was sorry. I'm still saying I'm sorry. And I will continue to be a student of life, say I'm sorry, love, and thank you. Have fun. Good luck. <laughs> So I don't know if you guys have ever seen Sheila E. on YouTube. Uh, she did a lot of performances on The Tonight Show and, and things like that where, oh, my gosh, the David Letterman uh, segment I think I saw recently. It's unbelievable. She's so talented, and she's got so many ideas as she's playing that she just goes from one to another. Uh, the timbales that I was watching her play a couple of weeks ago was just I couldn't I couldn't believe it. Um, very Im impressive musician, and as you can tell, a great, uh, a great passionate spokesperson for music and music making. Um, so it's a thrill to have this uh, little segment as uh, part of our uh, podcast today. So where do we go from here? Let's see. Next, we're going to hear her talking about uh, the difficulty in representing a specific role in music, the gear that she plays, as well as toka and designing drums for kids. Everything that I do comes from a place of truth and transparency. And because at 15, that one time that I played with my dad, then did I realize what my passion was. Um, to have so young that kind of feeling early on in, in my life, to be able to know this is what I want to do, that it was so intense that that one night playing, it took over my entire body. It, and it was really like a spiritual moment. And that feeling, I had never felt anything like that in my life before. And I knew that if that was so intense and that was something I'd never experienced, why would I not want to feel that every single day? Then I knew at that particular time, then this must be a gift because there's no way. I mean, I sat there and watched my dad play, but that passion comes from watching him play, and that passion came from the excitement, and I didn't realize that all of that, you know, by the time I got 15, I turned 15, I realized 
that one time, man, I want to do this. This is so it wasn't something that I just thought that I would let me try to figure it out. It hit me like a rock and I just fell over and went, oh, my God, this is it. Let's go. And, you know, like two weeks later, I was out on tour and I never looked back. That was it. Fantastic. Yeah. Can we talk just briefly about your gear mm -hmm. and what you uh, prefer to play? Uh, my gear, I play drums, is uh, drum workshop DW drums. Uh, I use Zildjian cymbals that they make for me that you can't buy in the store. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Zildjian cymbals, and I do have now uh, innovative sticks. And uh, let's see, what else do I use? Toka, percussion, congas, and timbales. Um, and then I use a lot of, you know, different, whatever I could buy and find either at outside at, you know, those uh, farmer's markets and things like that. All over the world, if I see something, like there'll be trinkets and different things, and again, I'm looking for sound, and I hear something in the distance or whatever, I'll find, like I have a, a jawbone from an animal that I found somewhere that the teeth rattle and make this crazy, I, I know it's crazy, but these are the things that I go out and I end up finding. So as far as endorsements, you have those, but then I look for other instruments as well, and, and I do love, you know, uh, all the technology as well. I, I use all of that, Pro Tools and Logic, it doesn't matter, I use it all, so. Yeah. And there, have there been signature model, like I think there's a signature model stick, is that right? Did you? Yeah, signature model stick now from Innovative Sticks and also have uh, signature uh, drums and percussion for kids through Toka Command. Yeah. That's very exciting. And that sort Thank of opens you. up maybe the last topic that I was hoping to cover, which is the kids and how important that has been to you for a very long time. Just encouraging and, and now making accessible instruments that they can relate to. Yeah, I, I started uh, with Toka. I started uh, designing drums for kids that were more designed as professional uh, instruments as, as opposed to toys. And I did that because that's how I grew up. My dad had his real drums sitting in front of me, his bongos and his congas, and they were real, real skins, real percussion instruments. So um, when I see some of the toys that the kids can play as percussion instruments, that's fine too. I've bought those as well, purchased those. Um, but I thought it'd be cool to get them something closer to the real thing. And so I think it's important, um, especially nowadays, for the kids to try to learn and put their hands on real instruments and just try it and see if they like it. Um, as, because technology is taking over and there's tons of technology that, technology that I use as well in the studio. You know, there's all kind of stuff that I use. But I also go back to the old school and say, hey, but I still want to incorporate the real instrument on top of what I have and that's what makes my sound as well. I don't want to fall behind with technology because I love technology. Um, but I also think it's just as important for the kids to be able to have that opportunity to uh, play an instrument, you know, or learn how to play an instrument. I think it's really important. So that was our interview that Dan conducted with Sheila E. back in July of 2014. Um, and so if you missed the first part, if you're just, if you kind of skipped ahead on that track, you missed uh, Jennifer Batten, so make sure you go back. And we're going to move on from Sheila E. to our next influential performer. I was going to say prolific, and it just threw me off because you said 
prolific. She's and, both. And I didn't yeah. even I didn't even pronounce it correctly I know, the first time. I too. know. So I just <laughs> it threw me for a loop. Um, but we're going to be talking about Wanda Jackson. Ah, yes, the queen of rockabilly. <laughs> Yeah, she was born in Oklahoma, and at that era where she was uh, in her late teens, when rock and roll hit, rockabilly uh, coming out of Memphis and influenced, of course, and developed by people like Elvis that she would later work with. And uh, Wanda has a remarkable role. Uh, She was the first woman to be inducted into the Rockabilly Hall of Fame, which I think is very fitting. And uh, as we celebrate National Women's History Month, uh, she's a very fitting person to, uh, to chime in here and, and tell us a little bit about her own history. Uh, this interview for the NAM Oral History Program was uh, captured back in 2006 by uh, one of the dear volunteers of the Museum of Making Music, who's no longer with us, Tony Schmidt. So a little shout out to, uh, to his memory today as we uh, recall this great interview with Wanda Jackson. So our first segment, we couldn't have an interview with Wanda Jackson and have her talking about this topic and not include it because I think if we didn't uh, Mike and I would probably be fired by Dan. Probably, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a requirement that anytime anyone mentions, even in passing, Elvis, you have to give it its due credit here in the NAM Resource Center. So the first segment here is going to be Wanda talking about one of her first tours with Elvis, which is pretty pretty interesting. I, did, did I say that? Was that convincing That was enough? impressive. Okay. Yeah, I could tell it's <laughs> a true passion of yours. Um, and then we're going to roll right into <laughs> what, I, what I found is one of the more compelling stories that Wanda told in her full interview, and that's the story of her trying to perform on the Grand Old Opry stage for the first time and being called out for not being dressed appropriately enough, um, which just kind of shows that they would probably never have asked a man to uh, change the way they dress. I mean, I guess unless they were in like short pants or something like that. Right. But uh, it's pretty interesting because uh, you can kind of, you know, go women. And I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) So here's Wanda Jackson. The first person that I toured with out of high school was Elvis Presley. So this was uh, July, well, my tour with him was in July of um, 55. And I had never heard of him at that point. You know, I just, I didn't know who it was or who I was working with. Then I met him at a radio station that afternoon of the first day of our tour, and I was very impressed with him. He was a nice-looking guy and uh, very mannerly. And nice, and so uh, it wasn't until that evening that uh, that you know I really didn't know who I was working with. I thought he was a country singer, <laughs> so I, I was in for a shock. But as it turned out, uh, I got to work with him biggest part of two years, and so there again he became a mentor for me, in in the way of. Uh, of encouraging me to sing uh, Rockabilly, which was really sweeping the nation. And I said, well, I can't really do that because I'm a country singer. And he said, well, he said, I'm a country singer basically, but I know you can do this music. And the kids are beginning to buy the records these days instead of the adults. And this is the kind of music they want, so you've got to try it. 
and he even took me to his home and um, played records and played the guitar and sang and trying to show me how I could get a feel for this. He had that much confidence in me, and so he made me promise I would at least try. <laughs> And so by 1956, I had the courage to, to try. And I think I really found my niche when I did the rockabilly songs. I just, I, I was so comfortable doing them and I loved it and I could just rear back and sing, you know. And so through that, I kind of established a style the, for girls in this rock vein. I was the first one to record. I was just out there on a limb by myself <laughs> and nobody knew exactly what to do with me. <laughs> but we finally got some hits, you know, it, it took a few years. America just wasn't ready for a girl singing this wild rock music and uh, they had just barely accepted Elvis and Jerry Lee and Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash and they just wouldn't accept me at first, but finally they, uh, you know, rock music was just in their face and there wasn't anything they could do about it <laughs> because the kids were uh, wanting it. And I finally got uh, a hit by 1960. And ironically, it was one of uh, Elvis's songs that he did in the movie, but it's called Let's Have a Party and it became a, a signature song for me in rockabilly music and throughout the world. So I was just out there on a limb by myself and, and America was having trouble accepting a girl doing this music. And not only was I singing it, I had changed the style of my dress. Uh, girls uh, and hillbilly music wore full skirts and cowboy boots and sometimes a hat on the back and I had been trying to wear that and I just didn't like it and um, <laughs> I was short and I just looked real frumpy in those clothes and my mother had always made clothes for me so we said well why don't we make this like a um, an evening dress more you know let's get rid of all that heavy stuff and the full skirt and she made me tight-fitting skirts and rhinestone spaghetti strap dresses and fairly low and we put fringe on it and so that made me I guess really quite a wild woman <laughs> in the 50s so it really wasn't all that wild but uh, at the time and so ever since then uh, you don't see a whole lot of cowboy boots and things on girls, so I think I help country music a lot by doing that. <laughs> Speaking of the spaghetti straps and the bare shoulders, wasn't there an incident, uh, an incident that took place at the old library? <laughs> yeah, there was. <laughs> well, I was thrilled to death to be asked to come and be on the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, every Saturday night, that was the thing we did. We sat around in somebody's house and turned the radio on and listened to the Grand Ole Opry. So this was such an occasion for me. And I designed a special dress and my mother made it and it was really pretty. And so Daddy and I went to Nashville and I'm there backstage. I had my guitar on, ready to go. 
and I was on Ernest Tubbs portion and so uh, he came over and he said now are you on the Jackson and I said yes sir he said well you're on next I said well good you know I stood up and had my guitar on already I said I'm ready and he said uh, young lady you can't go out on the stage of the Opry like that and I said like what <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean he said, well, you can't show your bare shoulders. And I said, well, it's the only dress I brought with me tonight. You know what? He said, well, do you have a jacket or something you can put on? And I was just heartbroken. So I ran back to the dressing room, got this leather French, dra uh, French jacket that I had worn over there <laughs> and put my guitar back on, went on stage. and. I remember I was half crying, and I was mad, <laughs> and I just didn't like it at all. <laughs> and so um, they didn't even have drums in their band, and you know I thought, well, how this is kind of old-fashioned. I was a Westerner, and uh, so I got my daddy afterwards, and I said, let's get out of here. I'm not ever doing this show again. <laughs> And um, I, I didn't. <laughs> uh, I read later where Elvis had uh, the same type of experience. They invited him, and he was booed all the way through his song. They didn't. And so they said when he left the stage, he said, I'm leaving. I'm never coming back here. And he didn't either. It just wasn't our thing. And. Uh, I really can't fault uh, anybody except the people that had invited me to come sing. They should have given me some rules. Yeah, you know, had I've known that, yeah, had I've known it, I, I could either dress different or I'd said, no, I won't do it. I don't know which. <laughs> so I hope you guys got a little bit of a kick out of that story about having Wanda having to put a coat on to be able to play, a jacket on to be able to play on stage there uh, because she had bare shoulders. Uh, I can't imagine what the Opry would think of like Miley Cyrus two years ago trying to come out I on know. stage there or something. Um, I mean, I know that that venue specifically has a different sort of heritage than some other venues across the nation and stuff like that. And there's You kind of play by a different set of rules to get on that stage am i right guys like, yeah so. yeah it's yeah. a different vibe than other stages it's right it's i don't know how to Very say traditional it. yeah traditional right. that's a good way of putting it right so you can kind of understand where they were coming from you know you have this bar that's been set and with these iconic performers over the last you know however many years and so you have to kind of conform to their standards to be able to say you played on that stage um but at the same time it's hey guys it's just shoulders like <laughs> 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 Uh, so, Mike, what are we going to hear next from Wanda? Next, we're going to hear about her working with Red Foley, as well as her Martin guitar setup. And then we'll conclude um, this segment before we kind of break again with a story about her Wanda touring with an interracial band and being told, uh-uh, that ain't going to work. Um and, you know, again, different times and different expectations. So she's got a pretty good take on it, and it's a pretty, you know, forward-thinking story in response from her way back when. Well, Red Foley had uh, the very first um, national country music show on television, and it was ABC. So when I was invited to do that, uh, I went up first and just sang a couple of times, and then they asked if I'd like to be a regular, and I said, I sure would. 
And so that gave me the national exposure that I hadn't had before that. And it was a real turning point for me in my career. I loved Red. Everybody that knew Red fully loved him. Great humanitarian, easygoing, fun-loving guy. Just, uh, And he, he loved all of us. He was kind of like a father figure to us. What a difference from Randall Lafferty. <laughs> yes, they even let me wear the clothes I wanted to wear. <laughs> You mentioned when you went on stage, you had your guitar. Uh, what kind of guitar were you playing then? Uh, oh yeah, that was um, the the first guitar, other than that little cheapy thing that Daddy got me with the stars and stripes and Uncle Sam had on it. <laughs> the first one from Sears and Roebuck, I guess. But my first real guitar was uh, a Martin uh, D18. I still have it, and I guess the plug for Martin is all right because Absolutely. that thing still plays and it sounds very good 50 years later, and it stays in tune. Did you have any particular tuning that you used on it, or was it just conventional? Conventional. Mm -hmm. So I played guitar on my performances for many years, and uh, eventually my husband, um, we were married in... 61 and he became my manager a few years later and he's been a very good manager through all these years uh, but he wanted to see me put that guitar down and sing without it and I didn't think I could do that either but I, I began by um, putting it down just for one song and then in a week or so I tried two songs and so I finally got to where I I didn't have to have it, and it it dawned on me that this was kind of silly for me to play a guitar all the time because I was hiding the things that <laughs> I really didn't need to hide at that point. <laughs> well, you, you certainly surrounded yourself with some fine musicians. Right, you right. In your groups. Uh, that was a blessing, too. some of your early recordings. You had some really good oh, cats. The, the best in the business. and. In fact, you had a group that followed behind you called the Polecats? <laughs> yeah, that was a little band out of Kansas that I hired to do tours with me. Uh -huh. Bobby Poe and the Polecats. And Big Al Downing was uh, on the piano, who later became a pretty well-known country singer on his, in his own right. Uh, in fact, the Polecats are on my recording of Let's Have a Party. And, and some of the other ones too, Happy Birthday Baby. And Did you have an instance with, uh, with it, working with that group? That was an interracial uh, musical group, wasn't it? And you ran into a problem, where was it, Bozeman, Montana? <laughs> yeah, you, you have done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, there was probably more than one, but this one I distinctly remember. and. Al Downing remembered it too. They, uh, the band set up and you know started playing, and I usually didn't get there that early. I'd come in just a little later, and uh, so when I got there, uh, got up on stage, and here came the manager, and he said, uh, "This isn't going to do. Just, just stop everything." And 
We said, what's the problem? He said, we can't have the black boy up there. And uh, I, I said, or I don't know what I said, but I thought, well, I said, he's in my band, and I think I only had three or four pieces. I needed him, you know. And I, I just, that had never been a problem before. I'd worked with him. He'd been in my band for a long time. So uh, I said, well, he said, let's just get, get the black boy off, and then you can play. And I said, no, sir, that's not the way it works. He's in my band, and so if he can't play, I can't play. So come on, guys, let's just load up and, and go home. Yeah, well, now wait, 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 just a minute. <laughs> I've got all these people here. So he changed his mind. But uh, what year was that? Al had a real hard time. Uh, traveling. Uh, the guys would even have to hide him in the car when they'd check into motels. He couldn't stay in the motels or hotels. Um, he couldn't eat in the restaurants in town where we ate. He had to stay in the car and the guys would bring him his food out. Couldn't even drink out of the same water fountains. A lot of places, dances, he couldn't, uh, couldn't get off the stage. You know, they let him play, but they didn't like it, but he could not get off the stage. And so, um, you know, I asked him one time, I said, Al, how can you put up with this treatment, you know, night after night? He said, because of the music. Oh, my. Yeah, and he was and very he was good. He was a fine piano player. Yeah, good piano player and great singer. Hmm? So as Dan mentioned earlier in our podcast when we were introducing Wanda, that she was, you know, she is the queen of rockabilly and really one of the first women to get into that genre and make it her own and everything like that. And Wanda tells this really great story that we're going to hear about how at that time nobody was writing music in that genre for women. It was all for men. And if she wanted to make a name for herself and really stand out, the only way she was going to do that is by writing for herself because no one was going to hand a woman songs, um, which is pretty fascinating and good for her for really, you know, sticking with that and making a point to make her dreams come true and everything. And I think that really is what leads to her continued success down the road because she writes great stuff and people love it and they eat it up and it eventually leads to her relationship with uh music instrument maker dz rock guitars which mike was just telling me about how awesome their nam display is yeah their booth is always uh really cool to check out um at the nam show they have these uh these guitars that are shaped like flowers and they always have this display where it looks like the guitars are sprouting up out of uh out of the ground so it's definitely uh, worth t- worth it to check it out if, if you're heading to the nam show in january and it's not just for girls no it's not <laughs> hey i'd play that i don't care <laughs> so here's the, uh the segments of us wrapping up with wanda jackson talking about you know being a female and getting music written for herself so that way she had stuff to play and as well as her relationship with daisy rock i wanted to record this rock stuff but i couldn't find any original songs. Nobody was writing them that would be suitable for a girl. And uh, so my daddy said, well, you've written quite a few country songs. Why don't you just start writing your own uh, rock things? And so I tried and uh, it, you know, it was really pretty easy to write them. (laughs) And so I, I recorded a lot of my own. 
But the other ones, uh, as you mentioned, were cover songs because there just weren't any other things for me to do. I was doing um, Rocker Girl, which is a magazine. They were doing a conference uh, like that. And uh, so I was somewhere doing something and uh, maybe an interview or whatever. And my husband just went walking. They had displays of various things. He came back and he said, you've got to go upstairs. You've got to see these guitars. They're called Daisy Rock, and they're so cute. I said, I think you might like them. So they allowed you to play them, you know, get the feel for them. And I picked out one. I said, yeah, I love that. So we ordered it right there on the spot. And I got the pink one, you know, my favorite color. And so I've had more fun with that guitar uh, from the very beginning. I, I had almost stopped playing guitar on stage. I, but the fans like for you to pick up a guitar. They like to take a picture of you playing a guitar. So I thought, well, this will be great because it's cute. And I started picking up this Daisy Rock guitar, and I'd tell people about it. I said, no, they're not paying me to do this, but I'm excited about this guitar. I told him it was scaled down a little, it was not so thick and bulky, and it was lighter weight and a real pretty color for girls. And I said, but the best thing of all is this one is cut down in just the right spot. <laughs> I would say Dolly Parton would have no problem with this guitar. <laughs> and so I, I think now she endorses them. but. Um, Anyway, everybody has loved that little guitar, and uh, I think me more than anyone. <laughs> so that was the uh, conclusion of our segment uh, from our 2006 interview with Wanda Jackson, the queen of rockabilly music. Uh, it, it's really neat. You know, this is our uh, podcast dedicated to the uh, National Women's History Month and uh, music, um, influential musicians and performers uh within the NAM Oral History Collection and just listening to these different segments about what she had to do with, uh, you know, the dress code at the Grand Old Opry and having to write music for herself because not a lot of people were offering uh, females rockabilly songs, uh, things like that. Definitely a pioneer and an influence to many other musicians. So uh, really a, a neat opportunity to celebrate her and her contributions. And so speaking of that, we're going to move on to another uh, woman who has really pioneered uh, her instrument and uh, been a big influence on many musicians, female and male. Yeah, so what we're going to do is a little bit different. We're going to put you guys, all you listeners, on the spot there to see if you can figure out which influential woman in, in performer we are going to be hearing from next. So what we're going to do is Dan conducted a couple interviews with this uh, female in the music industry and she was generous enough on camera to play quite a few of her iconic songs that she was a part of where she plays uh, mostly bass guitar and we're going to see if you guys can figure out who it was so these are the songs that she is like well known for she deserves all the credit for you hearing them on different tracks movie soundtracks and on the radio and stuff like that so listen and see if you can figure it out Thank you. 
Okay, so did you guys get it? Do you need another hint? I don't know if we can give him another hint without giving it away. I don't know. I don't know. There's a couple of other hints. Okay. Do you, do you got one you can give she, Well, she was born in Everett, Washington. Some well, people might know that because- If you're from Everett, this is probably the- I've been there. This is probably the only person ever who's made it born from Everett, Washington. No hating on Everett. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not, not good enough? Okay. Um, It's eccentric there. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, this- um, Do we get the cat out of the bag now? I guess we can. Okay. If you weren't sure, but now you know, that famous female musician is... Mike, you want to tell him? Yes. It's not me, even though everybody thought it was me. I'm just <laughs> kidding. Uh, Carol Kay. Oh, boy. I hope you got it right. You're cheering. You did like a little fist pump, something like that, because you got it right. Uh, what an incredible career she's had as a studio musician in Los Angeles as part of the Wrecking Crew and uh, things with Phil Spector and the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson... Uh, on and on and on, um, just incredible. And it's wonderful to hear her play, not only because she is so funky. I mean, it's just so funny to see this woman, now she's 82, you wouldn't necessarily think by looking at her, you know, going through Trader Joe's or whatever, oh, that's a funky lady over there. Boy, is she funky. <laughs> I, I love listening to her. And when she does like Mission Impossible and you could just see her getting into the groove, it's like, okay, that's what makes that song pop. It's it's not just notes being played. Somebody's really feeling that and and getting the best out of her instrument uh, in those tunes. So um, really, really fun. I also really uh, always appreciate seeing Carol at the uh, the NAMM show. She's almost always there and signing autographs. She wrote a book, as you may know, a uh, very influential how to play the electric bass back in 1969. And she's always got copies of that in her hand by somebody who said, I grew up playing this and learning this instrument. Would you please sign my copy? Uh, she's always very gracious about that. Um, but, you know, there's so many fun little trivia questions that revolve around her. Um, one of my favorites for years was who was playing bass on La Bamba with, with uh, Richie Valance uh, back in the 1958, uh, which was one of his biggest hits. Uh, of course, it was Carol Kay. So she has been around for a long time and uh, continues to play and continues to teach. And uh, it was a real joy to interview her a couple of times for the NAM Oral History Program, in the, including this one that you had just heard uh, which was taped back in 2002. Yeah, so the, the clip from Carol is all about incorporating incorporating the bass into music, and it is our web clip, or the term we affectionately call uh, the series of videos hosted on our website. So, Mike, where can people go to view these web clips? That's a great question. You can go to www.namnamm.org slash Library. And that was great. I loved that. I think it gets it better cool, every week. It was yeah. a good radio voice, too. I was really impressed. <laughs> I've been practicing. So we get on this one tune. Started slowing down. You know, really, really draggy. So, so anyway, uh, uh, I mean, Sweet Addison in the band says, Carol, do something. So I went, okay. Mm-hmm. 
like that. You know, so I'm playing a million notes all the way through the. the I'm doing that, that kind of stuff with the double stops and everything, trying to wake up the drummer. See, well, it woke up the drummer. So at the end of the take, I said, "Okay, now, I mean, now let's." let us make a good one for you. It's, that was it. I said, oh no, you don't want that. It's, it's a bass solo all the way through the record. I said, God, that, that, that'd be terrible to have a bass sound like that. I went in, I pleaded with him to do another take. He said, no, that's good. And Mel is just going, la di da 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 You know, I'm doing all this kind of stuff just to keep the beat going. And you know what, he, he told me later, well, what was a big hit for him, and he said he made more money off of that record than any other record he had. So, I know, you never know. So we have one more iconic female that we're going to hear from today as part of this podcast as an homage to National Women's History Month, and that is, oh, we love to give Dan a hard time about this one. <laughs> <laughs> this interview was just recently completed back in June of this year, of 2017, with Number one super fan Dan conducting the interview with uh, DJ Spinderella. Now, why are you picking on me? I just I'd you, love to know. I mean, you told us you you let it slip very early that you had a childhood crush on <laughs> DJ Spinderella. And, and when you were you were planning your trip to New York, the only thing you were talking about, you had all these great interviews lined up, but it always went back to DJ Spinderella. <laughs> yeah, but you guys don't understand. When I was a kid, oh my gosh, like. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm turning red now, aren't I? Yeah, and it's getting hot in here. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I can remember exactly where I was the first time I heard her, um, of course, uh, as uh, part of Salt and Peppa, and um, it was great, it was very influential uh, rhythmic music um, that I hadn't been accustomed to hearing, and uh, as soon as I had seen her play, um, scratching on the turntables, it was a, a whole new world in the early 1980s, and so Having the chance to interview her um, at the Scratch Academy uh, in uh, Greenwich Village, New York in June uh, was a real joy for sure. Um, so thanks for teasing me about that. And I'm really glad that we had the uh, opportunity because, um, you know, like the other women that we're talking about, it, the having the chance to interview them is not only documenting their stories, which they're grateful for, but it's honoring them and their contributions as influences uh, to other music makers. And uh, of all the women that were great, grateful for that nod, I think DJ Spinderella was certainly one of them. She was touched by the fact that she is an influence on other people and uh, takes that very seriously. And whenever she has the opportunity, um, she's out there at DJ battles in the in uh, the Bronx, uh, in the parks, uh, encouraging other people, particularly young girls, to be involved in music, uh, no matter what that might be. And in case you missed it, one of our earlier episodes, we ran a two-part series about influential DJs and the birth of our favorite word, turntablism. With um, a Z. With, no, it does not. No, it's an S. <laughs> that is how you spell it. But I'm it is trying. on Wikipedia. <laughs> I'm trying to change all that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so if you're into the DJ movement, we strongly recommend, if you didn't hear that episode, go back. And we owe a lot of our gratitude to c capturing these interviews with these iconic DJs to music advocate Christy Z, who helps Dan ar arrange a lot of them and keeps them in contact. And Peace everything. and love. Absolutely. She's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. So, Mike, what are we going to hear first from DJ Spinderella? Well, we're going to hear how she um, really got into playing and how she would go to the park and play these um, 
giant parties, really, um, and how her career developed from that. My go-to park, my go-to park was 18 Park and 22 Park. And in 18 and 22 Park, um, and Cedric and Cedar, because I lived right around the corner. But the ones that had to go far was 18 and 22. I stayed there. That was in the uh, Mitchell Projects, because they used to have a lot of parties at this, um, at this uh, center called Mitchell's Gym. And that was like 138th Street. Um, what is that? Um, Alexander Avenue over there. Uh, yeah. So that's where uh, they would have a lot of parties over there. So a lot of DJs, when they do, you know, the parties over there, that's where I would be over there. And outside was the parks, 2218 Park. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so. What are your, some of yeah. your fond memories of playing in the park in the early days? Um, the parks that I mainly, um, the ones that really, because I was young, really young and I couldn't go to a lot of parks unless I had someone older going with me. So I always had to, you know, cling to my cousins so I could go to the parks because I didn't have, like, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really, I wasn't close to, you know, the DJs. Like, I know them. My mom will let me hang out with them. I, I couldn't do that. You know, Red and them, is, they're older than me. So I really, you know, I, when they were doing the park jams, I wasn't allowed to hang out with the boys like that, you know. Girls had to do what girls do and boys had to do what girls do. I was just a little different because my parents were musicians. So they allowed me that little bit of flexibility and, you know, they understood the whole, you know, DJing thing. My mom bought me my first, my first rap record. So, <laughs> you know, she was, she was very, she was hard at first. She says, what's all that noise? <laughs> and that's when we were at the park that I would go to a lot. And that was, that was called Nelson Park. And my friends that I grew up around, they were DJs. They were the local DJs. And, you know, they would play in the, you know, in the parks there. So that's the, the park that, that was my favorite. Where I could go to that park and I know that the DJs are playing there. I know that they'll let me get on and play over there, you know? So, since I was the little one of the crew, so yeah. Yep. Really cool. That was my favorite part. So, tell me a little bit about how your career developed. Did you start playing in clubs? Um, no. No, my career started, um, being that I come from the home of hip-hop, I was always there with some of the celebrities that were coming up at the time. And the ones that were coming up right at my time, at my harvest, was the Treacherous Three. Okay, and that was with Cool Modi, L.A. Sunshine. And their youngest brother was Tila Rock. He, just, he had a song called It's Yours. This was before it came out. So we used to, I used to be in the skating ring all the time because I roller skate too. I do so many things. I dance, I sing, I rap, I DJ, I play instruments, I skate. I do everything because my mom was like, go outside, go outside. So I always, you know, found something to do, you know. So I, the treacherous three, they were my friends. And T. The Rock, he's the youngest one. Well, not the youngest, next to the youngest. We used to be in the skating ring together. And he was like, oh, um, he says, I got a song coming out, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. And I'm like, come on, you can tell me, you can tell me. You know, he's, no, I'm going to let it be a surprise. And um, he was like, all right, I got this song coming out called It's Yours. <laughs> and I was like, really? He says, I got to hear it. 
So I heard the song and then it came out. Then once it came out, we started like, you know, I saw that he was really serious about his music. So I started going to his house and, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, you write? And he was like, yeah, I said, and I write too. So we started writing together, you know, that whole nine. And then his brother was, um, his brother, um, Special K, Special K is a musician and he's a producer. So he would be downstairs. He's downstairs producing and his brother is upstairs and upstairs, you know, part of the house. It was like a two family house. So he has the DJ equipment upstairs. He's writing songs. So I'm, I'm getting to do everything up there, you know, DJ, write songs, do everything. And Special K wanted me to be downstairs. He was, he was writing a song for me to sing. So I'm downstairs and um, so we're working on some stuff, but then when people would come and see him, I would go upstairs and, and work on the equipment. So basically, I got my start, I got with the group, not my start, but I got with, the, with Salt and Pepper through Treacherous Three, through T. Larat, well really through his brother, through Special K. Special K introduced me to uh, Herbie, Herbie Azor, which was the producer for Salt and Pepper when they did their first song, Showstopper. And then I, then that's how I met Herbie, and then I met the girls, and auditioned, DJed, and everything, and they were like, yes. And that's how I got with the girls. So that was my first, introdu first introduction as a DJ, and was able to go platinum, to go, you know, really go mainstream with it. So I was the first one to, you know, lay the ground for females where people were like, oh wow, a female is really doing it. And it's funny because, um, like I said, Wanda D, I, I knew of Wanda D, but she, um, she was she was DJing and then she decided she was doing something else. She was doing some, some type of burlesque show. You know, she just, she went that way. <laughs> she didn't like, like, you know, stay with the whole, you know, hip hop scene, although I guess, you know, her manager decided he wanted to let her do that and that's what she did so that's what happened so so I'm here the original Spinderella from Soul and Pepper that's me all right so that was the start of DJ Spinderella's career her ref her reflection on it all and I would say most of us who aren't super familiar with DJs or the DJ scene or that kind of culture we probably we do know DJ Spinderella. If you're not, if that's not your music, if that's not what you're into, you still know her work because it's been on the radio for decades, thir 30 years. I, know, I mean, right? it's crazy. And you know her because she was part of this iconic duo. I guess it would be a trio with her. She just didn't get the frontline tag. And that would be Salt and Pepper. Salt and Pepper. Which every time I hear their name, I always just want to be like salt and pepper and we're here in effect. You're right. Because <laughs> we want to push it. <laughs> right. Push it real good. Now, the, when they were first introduced, <laughs> it was Spinderella's uh, name was definitely part of it. You know, it was salt and pepper and spin with or sometimes featuring or things like that. Oh, I didn't so know Spinderella that. did get some props and that's how I knew her name uh, in the early days. Mm. Uh, but then they became so famous. Uh, after she left the group that um, they didn't refer to her too much after that. But um, she was definitely there at the very beginning. And uh, I like what you said, Elizabeth. It's true. Not a lot of people understand that culture or grew up in that, but you could certainly appreciate what she was able to do with those turntables. She created new music along with a lot of other folks, but 
put it out there in Providence with uh, commercially successful recordings that have been on commercials and movies and TV and all over the place. Yeah, and I think she does a really excellent job throughout her full interview, which unfortunately you guys don't get to hear all of today, where she talks about how, you know, it does take talent to rap. It does take talent to be able to have that flow and that rhythm. But without the DJ giving you the backbeat, without the DJ giving you the music, like it's just not as powerful. And so even though Spinderella doesn't provide a lot of the vocal support that a lot of us kind of get stuck in our heads and everything. If you think of a salt and pepper record song, whatever with Spinderella on it, it wouldn't be the same. If she wasn't there, it would not be the same. And I think a lot of people struggle to give DJs credit because they're featured, they're introducing, they're kind of tagged on sometimes as an afterthought. And that's such a tragedy, I feel like. Absolutely. And she does a really excellent job of explaining that. Um, so we're going to hear her take on working with salt and Peppa early on, as well as some of the gear she grew up with and did for, worked with for her first recording and when they made it big. They were, they were called Supernature before they were salt and Pepper, And they did a show, Showstopper, which was the answer to Dougie Fresh, the show. Yeah. Yeah, so, and then I, when I came in, we recorded, we went to, was Green Street Studios, and we were going, we were doing all, you know, all the different songs, Tramp, I'll Take Your Man, all that, so, yeah, we were putting the album together. The album was coming together, so, yeah. So that's my picture on the first album, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Tell me about the gear that you use, and, and, and before I forget, I'm also kind of interested because um, you were recording um, way before a lot of other people were recording yes. um, yeah. turntable. And were there challenges for the producer, the engineer, as far as the equipment goes? Uh, no, because it no the turntable it no the, the turntable plugs in just like if you want to you know you want to add a it's MIDI it's like if you want to add a mic a mic or guitar, keyboard, you know, it's an instrument. So you so you just plug it in and you just add it in there and you want to do your scratches, it'll record your scratches or whatever and then then all we have to do is mix it. So it was it was good. Um, what was the gear you used on that first recording? Do you recall? Um I know, right? <laughs> it probably was the what turntable was that? If I'm not mistaken, it might have been a DL. It was an old one. It wasn't. It wasn't these. These weren't out then. It wasn't this one. It was the. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. It was probably. It was probably the, the, the DL one thousand. Was it the DL one thousand? No, no, I think it was the MK1. It was about the MK1, yeah. It was about the one. That's and probably... Were you helping with um, the music, helping write and, and create? Yeah, um, as far as, um, I mean, Herbie and I, we would sit up and play 45s and, you know, say, well, this, 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 you know, this will be dope, and you know, play that song that, you know, say, okay, well, maybe we'll sample that and see how that sounds, and um, and then once we figured out what, you know, what we were gonna do, then we just, you can basically, when you're getting scratch sounds, you just take your bass, 
the bass or the drum track or whatever, and you can scratch that over on, on any any record really, because you're gonna get that sound, you know, and then you just jigga 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 whatever. Back then it was so simple. It seems so difficult because we've advanced so much. Back then you do a little, you know, little three, four jigga jigga, you know, it was like you was really doing something. Jigga 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 jigga, you know, but it's really nothing now. It's like, what, that's all you did? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, well, that was a big deal then because it was never really done, you know, before that much. You know, you had, you know, you had Flash doing it and everything, you know, but it was like everything was basically, the, the, you know, the same, you know. So, I mean, because even records that I use to get different effects, like uh, I could take, like, if I want to transform, I'll get something like a, a whistle. And it's just, the whistle's just going, right and then the whistle's going and I just take it it's all in the equipment and I just you know manipulate it and it sounds like a sound like it's just doing like so much more but it's it's really very very simple to me maybe it seems simple because I'm a music person but to the ears to, to fresh virgin ears like wow you know so and yeah but um yeah so I did a lot you know a lot of scratches you know manipulating scratches and then of course we don't take it leave it just like that we take it and you know we process it and compress it and you know to make everything sound you know re really smooth and compact and so it flows and it's easy on the ears so yeah so what was it like when salt and pepper hit uh, it was it was really crazy because no one had really they had never seen a female with the group, I mean, there were, um, you know, you can get, you know, two girls rapping and, you know, freaking frag up and down, this and that, whatever, you know, and say words back and forth, but to have a DJ with them was a big deal, a very big deal. And we did parties uh, and the crowd was like pulling my hair and they want to touch me, they want to feel me, like, oh my God, she's really a girl, like, that's really a girl. And I'm like, Wow, because I was a tomboy all my life, so to me it was like, I have brothers, I grew up with boys, so it was nothing to, I felt like I was one of the guys. <laughs> and that's probably why I got along so well with all the DJs, you know, and hip hop, like they embraced me like a little sister, because, you know, I, I'm raised with boys, so it was nothing to me, so I'm like, okay, so I'm, you know, I'm DJing, doing my thing, and they are going bonkers, you know, it's like, it's like, I, I kind of could feel what the Beatles kind of felt like, you know, when they, the crowds were screaming and screaming, the girls were screaming. I mean, they, even the girls were like, wow, you know, they were at all, you know, but the, the guys really more so because it was a, a, a male-dominated thing. You all see all guys. So for guys to see a girl DJing, it was a really big deal, you know, so, yeah. That's awesome. And once again, this is DJ Spinderella that we're hearing from. And the last little segment we're going to hear from her is going to be a very interesting story on how she got the name DJ Spinderella. The name Spinderella comes from Cinderella. Okay, if you go back <laughs> um, when I'm from a little girl, um, you didn't have a lot of, we didn't have a lot of um, icons as far as, um, you know, Disney girl you know girls you know you look up to so we only we had let me see we had cinderella she was like the main one the, i think it was cinderella and just snow white right there was no one there who, who's aladdin who's all these you know who's 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 ariel and all these people they weren't even existed they weren't even in the, in the thoughts of the person who created them 
So all we had was Cinderella was the main one because she was the one who's waiting for the guy to come on the white horse and rescue her and take her away because she was being abused by the stepsisters and the crazy stepmother and all that. So um, they didn't have a lot of Cinderella. Um, you know, you can buy a Cinderella t-shirt like you could buy now. The only thing they had, and they didn't even have a watch. They didn't have all these things. They, they had like, I got my uncle from Virginia. I went all the way to Virginia and he bought me the Cinderella lamp. You talking about a kid that was like high. What? I had the Cinderella lamp, the lamp that had the, the real dress on it. Okay, and it was, it was, it was big, it stood about this high. And I just thought I was, I was the girl. So I had the lamp. The lamp traveled with me through my life. And when I got about, uh, about nine years old, I had the watch. It was the baby blue leather band with the Cinderella face inside. I was, if you had any type of Disney stuff from Disney, you were the, you were the chick on the block. Okay, I had Cinderella. Everybody else had Mickey Mouse. I think it was just Mickey Mouse. It was Mickey Mouse and Cinderella, yeah. So that was my thing. So I always wore my watch. And when I was DJing, one of the kids that was in the crew with me, he was like, he said, you, he said, you always have that Cinderella watch. And I was like, watching him like, are you gonna steal my watch? <laughs> so I would make sure that, you know, I was watching my watch and I'm watching him, <laughs> you know? And they were like, yeah, you're like, we, they started calling me Cinderella because I had the Cinderella watch. So then, after, you know, then after that, somehow someone said something, somehow we came, they came up, they said, spin, you, you spin, because you spin the records, you're spinning records and you like Cinderella, we're gonna call you spin, Spinderella. Spinderella, Spinderella, the, the girl, Spinderella, the some, something, Cinder, Spinderella, this pretty, the pretty DJ. They used to call, you know, because they were boys, you know, so. Anyway, and then so like, and then later on, I said, well, it, it's just stuck with me. You know, it just, it just stayed. And then later on, then, and when, when I got with the group, you know, with Salt and Pepper, Herbie was like, yeah, I like that name, I like that name, Spinderella. So I was like, okay, well, we can go with Spinderella, you know. And back then, there was no such thing as, you know, no one was copywriting their names and doing all that stuff. We were just, you know, having fun with the music, doing what we do. We weren't thinking about all the logistics, you know, stuff that comes, you know, with it, that you should protect your name and you should do this and do that. But when I did go to court for my name, they told me, you can't, you don't want to go to war with Disney. Disney is too big. You will never win. Forget it. You know? But it's not, but I'm not using Cinderella, it's Spinderella. So, Spinderella, it's because it's changed and switched up a little bit, you can, you know, you can still use it. So, that's how I got the name Spinderella because I loved Cinderella. That was my thing. <laughs> so, yeah, it is. It is. And no one even thought about it until I started talking about it. I said, I'm going to keep it on a hush. You know, because we have other people trying to duplicate and be, but when someone is authentic, there is an authentic line behind it. It's always, you know, the relevancy. It's things that you don't know, and they connect. And only if that is in 
you know, in the play, then you know that's really that person. This is the person, like a person who who write a movie. They can tell you details about the movie that no one else can tell you because they're the originators of it. So, yeah. So that's my name story. <laughs> so I guess this wraps up the, uh, the special podcast uh, in honor of National Women's History Month and uh, music in the um, women in the music industry, influential performers. Um, and that was DJ Spinderella from her uh, June 2017 NAM oral history interview. And thanks to all the influential women out there who've sat down with Dan or some of our associates to provide content for the program. And to all you ladies out there who want to make it big, keep, keep on pushing because you can do it. If these women can do it, when times were much harder for women to break into the music industry, you can definitely do it. So go women. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm. See you in Bye. two weeks. Bye.